you take it all the way back to the 80-20 study, which is a longitudinal study, right? Where, you know, people who do 80% of their training like super, super easy and only about 20% of it quality um, over a very long period of time uh, re retain a very high level of, of performance for a very, very long period of time. It's a very good way to go, right, from a physiological standpoint. So so sometimes I'll work with a, a, a good quality athlete that's making a lot of, of mistakes from that perspective, right? From a from a mechanical perspective, and they're very resilient. They're actually their own worst enemy, right? It's like going to the doctor and being really really sick, but you don't feel pain, so you don't have a way to find out, you know, what's wrong with this individual. Welcome to the Run Form Podcast. I'm Bobby McGee, running mechanics expert, and I'm Matt Pandora, your run specific strength coach. Matt and I have been working together for almost a decade on some of the top athletes in the world and we've decided to share that process with you guys. Welcome back everyone. Today we are talking about run form. What is it to run well? What does that look like? Bobby, I know you have several stories about this as a coach and looking at how runners develop. I tend to see in my background when I was looking at run form, I thought many times about how I had lost some of my capacity to hold my form, to really let it flow as I was building more volume or more intensity. And I feel like over the years, I had to relearn some of that. But I thought today it would be good to talk about really what happens to us from the time we're kids and then evolving as we start to try to transform in our sport. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating. It's it's almost difficult to decide where you would jump in, right, with run form. There's there's all sorts of things. I think a great place to start with run form is this realization that we all run um we we would all run as well as we were going to run round about the age of, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there if there weren't any environmental influences on us you know when you talk about born to run you know that we were all born to be endurance runners i don't i don't think that's the case right i think in that african tribe that had those conditions where it was possible to run down antelope that there were specific individuals in those tribes that would do that right and those were the individuals that was selected uh, naturally selected to, to be the runners, right? There were other people that were root diggers and there were other people that were fire makers and, and stuff like that. So if you look at the early fields when marathon running started becoming popular and you looked at these uh, professional runners that would run across America and stuff like that, would make a living out of running the pro runners, they would self-select, right? If you look at the photographs of the opening fields of something like the Boston Marathon or in South Africa, the Comrades Marathon. They were all very slight individuals. They had very little footwear on in the way of anything that would protect or, or anything like that. And so it it's self-selected, right? So somebody that, you know, was self-selected to be a very strong individual from a you know, from an anthropological standpoint, you know, wouldn't consider running long distances. So I think when it became a competition, then we started saying, well, what do we need to do? What do we need to look like, right? But I, I often in, in my work with athletes, 
think of hierarchies, right? What has this person done before and how has that impacted their running? And then I feel my job is to reach inside that runner and find the rest, the best runner that they ever were, not make them into something that they were never. Yeah, I think that's a really good point right there. I, I remember when I was a kid and I was really just getting into the sport because it's what I gravitated towards. And as I got to a higher level, I guess you would say, I got invited to Dartmouth and it was a, uh, a camp that they put on for high schoolers. And from there, I remember my form being analyzed and I was given a lot of advice on things I needed to change. And that was very awkward for me. It wasn't automatic at all. And I think a lot of times when it comes to getting to our best selves or being able to express or let that form flow out of us, it does need to become more visceral. And I think that we have steps that we can take so that we can get back to our best version of our run form. Right, Bobby? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I remember, you know, a lot of, a lot of my formation of my teaching practice came from when I came from South Africa, where I didn't have that really strong distinction of what a runner should look like, right? I just had all of these high-end high school runners, uh, pro runners, and high-end amateurs that I would see run every day, right? In an environment where it was pretty warm all the time, where a lot of the kids went to school, um, barefoot, they played rugby, barefoot, they played whatever they did, they did barefoot, right? Uh, you know, our, our first you know, sort of world stage runner um, at that point in time was, was Zola Bud, right? And she, she was a barefoot runner. And I remember the whole process of taping up her feet before she would run a 1500 because the modern synthetic track would, would tear their feet up and so on. And coming to the US, you know, as a level three IAAF certified coach and going, why is everybody carrying their arms so low, right? And then finding out over time that that was an old lesson taught at college. A lot of collegiate coaches would say, you've got to run with your hands real low, right? And yet the very level one biomechanics with uh, the International Amateur Athletics Federation was elite distance runners run with a tight elbow angle. Like Nuff said, no, no more conversation. So it's kind of like crazy going, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. Why are the best runners in the world running with really tight elbow angles, but it's being taught that you've got to run with your hands real low because that, that's relaxed and that's the way that you run fast. It is crazy to me. So yeah, it's, it's all about our background influences, right? So I grew up watching runners with very high cadences, very light across the ground, very small individuals. And so to me, that was what good running form was. Right? Yeah, and you're... You've talked about running with the glass tutu, which is something I wanted to bring up today because when you talk about that arm angle, I remember starting as a high school cross-country and track coach where in cross-country, I was the head coach and I didn't really have to uh, compare notes with anybody. But once I got to track, these other track coaches looked at me like I had two heads when I said that they had to have a more uh, you know, compact arm position. And so I think it's a good start to talk about that. What is compact and why we need that as endurance athletes, as opposed to somebody who's say doing the uh, hundred meters. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
you know, just as a as a, and as an example there, right? You take you take a bunch of world class swim coaches and you put them on deck, and they could watch swimmers, and they'll tell you who swims well and who doesn't swim well, right? Uh, and you take a bunch of equally good run coaches and you say, okay, which one of these runners is a good good runner? And they'll say, well, we need to see some times, right? We can't tell from the way they look to tell you whether they're a good runner or not. So yeah, that that whole idea is is you know my my education started with formalized training, and then I attended a lot of coach education courses. All right. And so in that time, you always, and then very shortly after that, got involved with coach education myself, right? Because I was in a very uh, small environment to do that. So you would move through the ranks pretty quickly from, you know, beginner coach to, you know, you know, getting better at coaching. And then suddenly people start asking you and they asking you just because your athletes are doing well, right? And so when it comes to that compact thing, that's kind of like, Part of the mantra that I created for myself is, okay, now I'm looking at a runner globally and I'm you know, looking at lab numbers and I'm going, okay, this guy's got a big engine. Why is he not turning it into a performance, right? Or this, this gal looks really, really um, good when she runs, but wh- why is she not, not performing, right? And so then you start looking at things. And one of the first things you look at is, is compact, right? I mean, the, the analogy that everybody will understand is, you don't know, need to know anything about running, but you can watch friends and see Phoebe doing that that uh, that example of running through the park and the arms are flailing all over the place and she's having an absolute blast, right? But everybody knows that's not how you're supposed to run. So we, we have a picture in our heads, right? And so the pictures, the first part that I would start with is that, you know, the shoulders are down, but the arms are closer to the body. And then you can start saying, okay, that individual's arms are a little further away from the body because they've got very broad shoulders and very narrow hips, you know, and so on and so forth. And then, wait wait a minute, why is that person's arms up so high uh, and it's causing them to sway from left to right? They're using a lot of form power and so on. And you can look at the hip structure and you can also then start looking at things like range of motion and you start looking at things like strength and muscle endurance and so on. So I think compact is a nice overall thing. One thing that you see with great runners is that they are compact. And when you see somebody that's not compact, even though they uh, they really good runners, the McColgan uh, girl that that won the Commonwealth Games in in the five thousand is a good example, right? She looked so ungainly, but she still won the race. You know, obviously very strong, very mentally strong, and so on and so forth. But people are still looking at that and saying. She doesn't look like the better runner, right? But she happened to be, she happened to win the gold medal. Um, and then some of that is is genetic too, because you looked at her mom. Her mom was a world-class runner, very, very good runner. Also had that kind of ungainly gait. But then when you look down where the rubber meets the road, you start noticing, okay, well, that's working, right? And so instead of saying, um, well, she's not a great runner. You're saying, well, how does she run so well and look so ungainly? The actual answer to that is she could run better. She could run even faster if she addressed that, right? And so uh, it, it becomes a complex thing because it's a, it's a newer part of the conversation that you can do something about your mechanics, not like from a traditional skills learning with other sports, but through other methodologies that, that you know that you and I have worked on for a very long time. Yeah, and I I think I wanted to give people a little bit of a visual here. So 
when you're talking about having more control, when you're being able to hold your position and let that posture flow out of you, that's that's a state that I think it's easy to say, but it, it can be hard to achieve. And looking at the deep abdominal muscles more and how we can control our position, steer with our hips. And when you look at, for example, somebody dropping their arms, that may be a pattern that they learned in high school because that's what the track coaches were teaching, especially for the shorter distances. That may be some learned behavior, but there's also demonstrating or being able to control those peripherals, the, the arm swing, the legs from the, from the core, right? And what does that really mean? So when we talk about core guys, we're referring to the, the deeper muscles as well. So doing crunches alone, that's not going to get it, right? In fact, this weekend, we're going to be working at a camp with several athletes. And I guarantee you there's one test that I will give and it's just um, the dead bug. And we can even have this up as a visual for you guys listening. But when you're doing a dead bug, you're laying on your back, your knees are up, and you're starting to go into that run form, if you will, where you're extending one of your legs out with the opposite leg starting to reach overhead. And the idea is that the athlete should be able to hold a band that I will pull from that's placed under their lower back. And if they can hold that position for a minute, they're demonstrating good core control. But I doubt anybody will pass that test the first time we give it. And that's kind of the demonstration I like to give because we are getting that additional oscillation, if you will, because we can't keep that lumbar in a good uh, flex position and we're not controlling that position. And a lot of that comes from just starting with breathing mechanics. So we kind of can even say something that's going to be nasal breathing only in the beginning to do a core exercise. That's kind of a mulligan that I know if we're just using nasal breathing, we're going to be able to improve the mechanics because we have to now go slower. We have to be more determined in our movement pattern. And that's what really triggers more stability. So starting with movements like that allows us to keep that arrowhead, if you will, down, right? So when we're talking about good compact position, the the sternum, we want that sternum just slightly pointing down. That's your term I like to use, Bobby, point the arrowhead down. But it's drills like that that really start to get more into those isometric uh, breathing patterns so we can see that those little guys are doing their job too, right? The multifidi, the the internal external obliques, uh, your erector spinae, your quadratus lumborum, all of these muscles beyond just your your abs. Yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, I'm I'm with you there completely. I'm just thinking of the example where um, uh, one of the runners we're going to work with this weekend, when he initially started working um, in 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 his training group, he came from a swimming background, right, and he was. I don't know what his 5K time was then, but it was definitely somewhere in the 16s or the 17s. And he just last weekend ran 14.50. And it was not lost on me that uh, running 14.50, winning the race and, and having nobody push him in that race was not lost on me that he's just come out of a, a, a base phase of training, has done one or two quality workouts, but he's come through an extensive, very detailed 
Matt Pendola driven strength and conditioning phase working on exactly those details, core control and all those sort of things. So we're, we're and, talking, you know, Bobby, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I get excited now, right? So we're talking about uh, John Reed and he's a young athlete that uh, you and I have both been able to to serve over the past uh, year. And I like to bring him up in particular because really a couple years ago, he was at a camp and we saw these energy leaks, if you will. He he had more of that swimming background. He was quite strong in a lot of ways, but he wasn't able to really hold his position when he was uh, when he was running. Right. And that was the the main thing that we wanted to be able to focus on. So when I looked at just having him do a pull up, I don't know if you remember this, but I said, go ahead, do a pull up. And we were outside at the Olympic uh, training center. And he just grabbed a beam overhead and he did a pull up. And you could see immediately that he had oscillation there. And a lot of people don't realize the pull up is more of a core movement than even working your lats, let's say. So he had done pull ups um, because of his history with swimming, especially in college. And he felt like he got really good at pull ups. But when we took a better look at that, we could see that. He couldn't keep his hips in that uh, posterior pelvic tilt to really draw in from the bottom and kind of close that line up between the groin and the sternum, right? He couldn't shorten that line up or keep it shortened up while he was squeezing his uh, his adductors together. In other words, drawing, if you, if you imagine the hip bones drawing together a little bit more during something like a pull-up, now we're able to see that he can recruit those patterns and use those patterns and really recruit his core more in movements like that. So the movement, the strength movement itself is now more beneficial. But at the time, John, I don't think really bought in until we were able to uh, show him and break that down from and say, this is how we should be able to do a pull up. And I think that's what helped to put that light bulb on for him. And it was really in the last year that he started to really uh, make some significant progress once he adapted these these um, these principles. Yeah, and that brings me back to again this all-encompassing word that we speak about, you know, being connected and being compact. Right? Is that he was strong enough in his upper body with his background to just use a very small. A group of muscles to perform a pull-up, right? But what we could see is was a peripheral movement. So that pull-up wasn't really helping his swimming at all. He needed to engage completely uh, because it all comes down to catching water. But from our side, from the running side, what we immediately could also see that he basically had a wet noodle from the bottom of his ribcage to the top of his pelvis, right? There was no control there. And so transferring any of the kind of cardiovascular ability that he had uh, in the water to to his running was go always going to be problematic unless we address that specific issue, right? So that word, you know, compact and, you know, leads to connected and it has all those other words like coordinated and balanced and optimal range of motion and you know, the the big one, right, is that harmonized cadence, that cadence that matches up to the way that, that an individual move, moves their body, right? And uh, once you start addressing those things, then you can start seeing where those, you, you already mentioned it, where those energy leaks are, right? 
um, you know, the Stride device has that beautiful capability, that factor that they call form power, which just distinguishes how much strength and power are we using to keep ourselves on the line that we're trying to run on, right? And that's where the, the, the kind of work that you and I do are, is, is crucial, right? So that to reduce the waste of energy where energy vectors are either being absorbed and not being returned as elastic energy, or they are outside the driveline. In other words, they're not helping drive the body forward. They're either driving it sideways or they're driving it too much up and down, um, or they're driving it across lines. And so this become, this is what makes understanding uh, you know, how people run is so important because a lot of it is not necessarily visible. You can see the results of something that's missing, but you can't see what's missing unless you, you know, you go into it so much more deeply and you start addressing that. And I think that's the, 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 the key when it comes to working with somebody's run form is, is understanding that you have to remove some stuff and have to put some stuff down you have to lay some foundations and then the outpouring of that is running more mechanically efficient efficiently rather than saying put your arm here put your knee here put your foot here flex your ankle in this way you know all of those things you can use those some of those are cues but they are cues to get the athlete on cycle but just like in so many other sports we started to realize more and more the athlete cannot do that. They don't have the range of motion. They don't have the strength. They don't have the muscle endurance. And that's why a lot of the time, if I don't get a, a long opportunity with an athlete, and you and I are the same, right, that you are trying to give them something that, that they can use intra-run, right? So when they start running, they look okay. And when they get towards the end of that run or that race, they don't look okay, right? So there's, there's a specific endurance component missing uh, that isn't physiological. It's clearly mechanical. It's clearly because they have a, a lack of strength or they're utilizing a mechanism incorrectly. And the only way to teach them that is through these kinds of movements. Right. And I think we talk so much about the mechanics because, at least in our experience, when we're working with athletes in these camps, they're physiologically, they're, they're sort of at their capacity or they're near it oftentimes, but they're not anywhere near their capacity with their mechanics or, and in other words, how they can support their skill sets with, with better strength, but looking more specifically at how we're doing those movements. Because I think the biggest thing I tend to see, like the example I brought up with John is that They've been doing movements for years, but how are they doing the movements? Are they doing that with the right uh, breathing techniques? Are they doing that with the right amount of control? Are they actually keeping their lower back smashing the ground as they move peripherally, right? And those are the things that have big crossovers or it's very relative to being able to cross over to, to our running gait. And when we look at something like where our foot falls and we can talk about uh, how uh, that shank is controlled with the hamstring. And so that athlete will do, let's say, hamstring slides, which is a great movement. But if they haven't started with how they're connecting, right, how they are holding that compact position and connecting, that's why we say it all starts with compact positions and it flows from there. 
Correct. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely cor correct. It's it's that frustration when you when you feel, and it's happening less and less as as these superstars start doing more and more of this kind of work. I mean, it's it's it still holds a place of pride for a lot of these elite athletes to show themselves on on social media, not just running, but to show themselves doing intricate, complex, repeated day in and day out work. I, I remember when when the Jonathan and and Alice Brownlee were the, the you know the the superstars of the sport of triathlon, multiple medals between them, Alistair, two gold medals, that kind of thing is is that they were doing form work and a lot of that form work was being driven, especially their run form work, was being driven by a physical therapist. The physical therapist was the one doing the drill sessions and and guiding which drills should be done, making that specific connection to that specific athlete. So I, I think it's just so, so exciting. And another thing that I want to step onto is, is what are the runners thinking, right? So part of our job is to create a picture for the runner of what is effective running and how do they get there, right? So uh, that that's... I think in, in, in multiple cultures, right, running is, is less of an outflowing of their environment and more of something that they think about, right? And I think there's quite a lot of uh, initially cognitive intervention when people run, right? They think, okay, I should be doing this. And, that, and that's a disaster, right? Their running should be an outflowing of their ability to move, you know, the, the ability to move in running. And that's that's where that work comes in. And we see that so often, right? With the advancement of, of measuring physiological improvement, as well as the massive advancement in physiological conditioning for endurance events, we get athletes that work, you know, it was interesting to me. I went to um, an altitude, uh, uh, altitude training symposium down in Colorado Springs and it was actually the swim, uh, the swim coach who was doing a presentation was saying, in in the world of endurance and how altitude benefits swimmers, um, we are so far behind the cyclists and the runners, right? And I, what I was hearing underneath that was him actually saying we spend so much time on form and technique and so on that we don't, we train hard, but we don't train only for physiology. We're trying to get you know, we're trying to work on that form. And I think that that's what happened with running is we train so much for physiology, which we have to do, but we don't realize that disconnect is, is wait, this engine here has this ability. Why is this, this ability not being represented on the road? If you put that individual who's developed that engine on the bike, there's a much closer connection between physiological capability and performance on the bike. Why is it not the same on the run? And the answer is obviously quite clear, right? You, you, you've built a V8 engine and you've bolted it onto a toilet door and you expect it to perform. It's not. You really have to work hard and getting that toilet door to be a structure that can transfer that power onto the road. And, and uh, you know, a lot of times you, you see these typecast things. I mean, you look at a track cyclist and they just massive quads and massive uh, calf muscles and massive glutes right you don't see that in a runner even no matter how elite they are right they don't get huge like that and similarly the cyclists have the smaller upper bodies or used to have right 
And with runners as well, they have those smaller upper bodies. They come to swimming and they struggle because the upper bodies have adapted to running. They've lost range. They've lost power. So it's so important to realize that very few individuals can run enough or cycle enough or swim enough, you know, in those worlds where they will progressively get better, where form will fit function, right? Because the reality is, is most age group athletes will break down before form starts to function. And so we have to work on stopping the breakdown by A, improving the form and B, improving the, the conditioning of the structures that transfer the power onto the road. And I, th I think that's, that's largely a missing piece for, for the average runner. Yeah, and I, I have a short story that I think I'd like to share just about my own experience with this and your fractionalized running plan. Because when I first started to really get it and understand it, I'd been a strength coach for several years, but I was doing, while well, I was getting, preparing for a race, the North Face um, Half Marathon Trail Championships. And so I didn't have a lot of time with my schedule. I couldn't put in the amount of volume I had in the past, but in the past, my hamstring was a real problem for me. And I was usually limited by that, especially when it came to speed development. So I was doing your three minutes of running is what I started with. And I would actually use the woodway in this case, I was running on a woodway and I would get off for that minute in between. And I would work on something like the Copenhagen, which for me, through my testing and retesting was an area that I needed to really work on. And I just kept involving more of that fractionalized approach, but my overall mileage was way down or way less than I had done before. But my quality days started to really come together and the hamstring pain went away. I started to work a lot more on the quality over quantity, not saying that the physiology or the amount of uh, quantity I was doing wasn't important. And I did have a history of having some high volume in my training. So I had that already in my background, in my physiology, but there was, um, for me, a trade-off there. Where I had to accept the fact that I wasn't going to cover as many miles, but the, the biomechanics that I was working on and getting that, that flow out of my posture was the most important thing. And I ended up taking over eight minutes off of my, my best time on that course. Uh, I did win my division, wow. but you know, Bobby, that was with a whole lot less, um, volume. And I think I had to trust that process. And for the first time, I think I really did. And I can't speak enough on that because now that I have that base understanding and literally my base, I I'd never go back. And it's not a problem for me to increase my volume, to be able to do more miles, especially at times when I want to focus on that. I have the foundation for it, but um, I just thought I wanted to speak on that for just a moment, maybe finish off with this, is that um, you often say the protocol that you're giving your athletes, if they're doing 10 minutes less of running because of it, then it's well worth it. So would you maybe speak on that a little bit? Yeah, no, I I love the story, Matt, and I've and I've heard that story so many times before, right? So if you take it all the way back to the eighty twenty study, which is a longitudinal study, right, 
where you know people who do 80% of their training like super, super easy and only about 20% of it quality um, over a very long period of time uh, re retain a very high level of, of performance for a very, very long period of time. It's a very good way to go, right, from a physiological standpoint. So you're right when you say that you have a lot of endurance in your background. I think that's a critical thing to talk about, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the more consistent that endurance in your background was, also the better, right? And what made the consistency was the resilience. So sometimes I'll work with a, a, a good quality athlete that's making a lot of, of mistakes from that perspective, right? From a, from a mechanical perspective. And they're very resilient. They're actually their own worst enemy, right? It's like going to the doctor and being really, really sick, but you don't feel pain. So you don't have a way to find out, you know, what's wrong with this individual, you know? Um, uh, so when it comes to, to that component that you're speaking about, I think it's important for people to realize it's this, it's, it has to happen in unison, right? So, you putting out a certain amount of energy, but it's very variable how much of that energy you're getting back, right? Because running is mostly an eccentric contraction movement, right? So it's more about bounce. You know, even race walkers have, have bigger legs than, than elite distance runners do because theirs is more, more a strength activity, right? And you look at those animals that are so swift and have these high levels of endurance. They have very, very light, small high tenderness lower legs but they don't have a lot of muscle mass they have a lot of muscle mass higher up right in 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 the glutes and in in the quads and that kind of thing so uh you know what one learns from that is is that i've got a good quality basketball that that uh that i know how to use but the basketball i don't have a pump so the basketball has lost some air right so i'm putting in a lot of force trying to bounce that basketball but i'm not getting it back but when you start stiffening things up, when you start making things more compact, when you start making things more connected, then an automatic outflowing of that is cadence. I remember working with uh, Gwen just uh, two weeks ago, we had this realization that her stride angle has reduced. All right. And so in other words, she's not taking as long a stride at race pace as she used to, but her cadence has gone up considerably. And if you do the math, She's now running the same speed, but more efficiently because she's taking more steps per minute, all right, which is more a neurological form-based, stiffness-based, stability-based, balance-based, coordinated-based activity, um, but she's, the cadence is higher. So the math works out that she'll probably be able to run as fast, but further. So, you know, it's that kind of exciting thing that comes to us where you do this kind of work. And you get instantaneous benefits, right? Where you go, all right, a lot of this work are reduced gains that I'm getting from doing this mileage. Uh, but if I do just 15 minutes or just 20 minutes of this four or five times a week, I, I make much bigger gains, right? And so you start to figure that out because the running itself is addictive, right? So sometimes we get to it where it's not useful for us. <laughs> and, and, you know, we we're doing too much of it and it's limiting us. So I see a lot of runners that have a lot of time running, but you can see the one thing they're missing is some sort of recovery or some sort of strength. They're running through the ground. They're running through their hips. They're really working hard to keep this 
model rolling, but they're not getting any better. In fact, they're risking quite a lot in doing what they're doing. Yeah, I know. Well said. And I think when we designed our run form progressions in our program, we started, for example, with movements that required nasal breathing and they were slow. These are even you call them quasi isometric type of movements, at least on the strength side of things. And we chose to use bands. It's versatile, but also it's also it's really good for getting you to not just contract but react in these movement patterns. And the very first movement we give is called starting with your stack. And movements like this, I think, is why we need to start off slow. So it is more cognitive, like you were mentioning before, it, it can be more cognitive. And then when we start to add in your DMDs, your dynamic mobility drills, then we start to let it flow out of us a little bit more. It starts to allow that process to be more dynamic, more visceral. And graduating in steps, I think, is the is the main point that we like to try to get people to understand. It's a, it's a process. And it's something that we need to start back with the basics with and build up from there. By the end of our program, you're going quite explosive. You're going into patterns that require you to be a lot more automatic and visceral. And that all builds in your running. But uh, I think this these are all good examples about how we can start to understand that if we can start with that compact uh, position, we can get better connected and that can all relate to a better cadence. And it's really not about trying to change who you are or how your foot strikes, but more about um, how we can support who you are and how we can get the most out of your biomechanics uh, with all of that hard work you're putting into your physiology. Am I right? Yeah, no, correctly. I mean, totally, because the, the specificity component people miss, right? So I know that when you're designing movements and so on, you're always tracking it back to what are we conditioning that movement for, right? So what is the athlete going to be doing that requires conditioning in these in these complex in these complex movements? And I remember thinking about this way back with Sebastian Coe. He, he apparently used to do partial leg presses, eight hundred per leg, continuously. Right, just thinking of that specificity of 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 contraction stiffening, contraction stiffening all the time. So uh, you know we've advanced so much beyond that now that you are already at the at the forefront of of realizing the sequence of muscles that take over and make a movement from a reactive movement starting to make it a proactive movement where the runner is now deciding to lift their knee and deciding to extend their knee, which are disasters in the world of running, right? And so you creating these these movements where the athlete is set up to react to his posture or to her posture and, and move forward in that way. Yeah. Yeah, no, well said. And with any question, by the way, I wanted to mention that the app is now free. So people can get on there and check out any of our answers that you and I are giving on any question. But I have several videos on there where I demonstrate movements that we're talking about here. But it just reminds me yesterday, I had a video I put out on knee pain and what we can do, especially because uh, the particular question was about whether or not we can still squat with, with knee pain. 
And we have to be able to squat. We have to be able to go through these patterns if we expect to be able to run well. So we have these uh, quasi-isometrics, but we also have these positions where we're really talking about tendon training and we're talking about these connections. When we say connections, it's it's about getting a little bit more of, you like to say, I think the, uh, the springs, right? Or that sprung steel. We want to be able to get those connections more like in our youth, especially when they were more like cables and, and, and now there may be a little bit more like, uh, you know, ropes. We, we want to be able to get those cables tightened back up. We want to be able to have that stiffness and it all starts with compact positions. Correct. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree, Matt. Well, Bobby, thanks. This has uh, been, I think, really, well, it's at least helpful for me. I'm glad we talked about it. And uh, we really hope it helps people out there listening and uh, make sure you let us know if you have questions. You can go, again, any question is free now. So you can go on there. You can ask us any questions you want to. Bobby's on there. I'm on there. But also you can just let us know what it is that you'd like us to talk about more. We'd be happy to do that. And uh, it's been really fun. This is our second podcast together, but I'm looking forward to more, Bobby. Yeah, no, me too, Matt. I'm furiously make notes here. You know, sometimes you'll see my eyes drip down when you say something. I, I make a little note and say, oh, I'm always asking myself, okay, how do I incorporate? How do I, you know, find find a drill movement that, that matches that movement, you know? So very exciting. Yeah, thanks so much, Matt. It was great talking to you again. Thank you, Bobby.